Christmas and welcome to Church and Other Drugs. How you guys doing out there? I wanted to release this episode before I go on vacation for a week so that, um, shoot, that'll be like three episodes released uh, like within a week and a half. So I expect y'all all to listen to them on your way to family time, Christmas time. Uh, also, we got a special, uh, special advertiser for this show. Um, it's, it's some guys making a podcast about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, but it is a, uh, you know, it's a different take on it. It's a different take. You, uh, you may recognize my voice as one of the presenters. Uh, the second thing, I just wanted to kind of do a oh, disclaimer, I guess. So if you guys haven't noticed by now, I'm not really the type of host to like aggressively push back on opinions of guests that I might not agree on, okay? That doesn't mean that I agree with what they're saying or that I condone what they're saying, um, I, but I'm not going to silence them necessarily. Uh, I guess I do have my limits of what I will post on here, but um, with that, you know, you'll be able to figure out the uh, the the sharp. Uh, you'll figure out what I'm talking about on this episode. But just remember, um, just because I don't push back on things and some previous episodes of of some opinions of some guests that I didn't necessarily agree with or um, believe in, but that's 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 their bag, and you know that's cool. They were kind enough to come on my show, so I'm really. Not, you know, unless it's like a debate episode, I'm not just going to be like, uh, you know, I don't really want to get into it. Okay. You hear me? So, uh, just keep that in mind. So enjoy this advertisement and then, uh, enjoy, I think now the longest or the most times on the podcast, I think, uh, congregation sleuths figure that out for me. Um, Brian Gadawa is back, uh, talking about his new book about Moses versus the gods of Egypt, the ultimate smackdown. Uh, You guys have a Merry Christmas, and I will see you uh, in the new year. I don't know what's tell the truth if you told where I'm from Anyone I find and choose You will bother if you choose me I don't know what I think of you Eyes and talent insecure Chloroform I would rather stand if you stay
cultural church conditioners. They go by C3. Basically, there's a lot of churches out there. They get, they're good at coming up with content, but they're not good at coming up with content that's applicable to other demographics that you're trying to reach. So basically, a church will come up with content. They'll send it to cultural church conditioners, C3, and then C3 sends it back, but it's relevant, edgy, and applicable to the culture that that church is trying to reach. So for example, check out what they did for the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast. This was submitted and the demographic target was rednecks in the South. Did I pledge my Why ain't we looking at the deeper stuff that caused all this shit in the first place? For the purpose of progress. Cause we have a culture of church folk who would prefer a narcissist. Yes. Narcissist. I don't know what the hell that means. How am I supposed to say? Shit, I need my reading glasses. Mark just came and said, if you plant a church, he's going to tear it down dick by dick. What the hell does that mean, dick by dick? God in the process. How dare you? Uh, louder. Uh, who in the hell do you think you are? Was I chasing convenience? Act like a scientist? There's real chronic trauma that comes from working in systems like this. In a wave of disaster. There's a few of you that if I wasn't gonna end up on CNN, I'd go Old Testament on the Old Testament. Where the captain's a captain. A lot of pastors get fired. Driscoll got fired for being a fucking piece of shit. asshole. So like shouted at the top of my lungs. Who do you think you are? I'm Mike Cosper. It's a story, this podcast story of a great old big-ass church that changed lives, gave gave people hope. But then you find out the leader of the whole damn thing is corrupt or sick or something. So as Christians, you look back on a shit storm like this and you think, thought it was awesome and now you got shit in your head you gotta work out that was like was the community even worth it if we had it to do all over again in other words would we have started this in the first place So, 
I think at this point, you may be the most frequent return guest. Because is this the is this the fourth time? Gosh, I don't keep track. But I think so. Yeah, it's I think so. Uh, it's it's third or fourth. But Brian, well, Gadawa, I'm honored. Yeah, you should be. That's 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 the point. It's it's a it's a great honor at this point. How you been? Busy. So yeah. basically, uh, <clears throat> in 2021, well, let's see, in 2020, November 2020, last year, uh, my wife and I moved, escaped from Los Angeles and moved to Texas. So you you pulled a Joe Rogan. I did. I did. Did and you did you move like for the same reasons everyone else left? I did. I did. And by the way, a lot of more people that I know who work in my business are leaving L.A. too and California. So tell me why. Well, um, multiple things, but. Did you move to Austin, too? No. OK. So Austin is, and the reason why Austin is where a lot. It's a very creative community. It's kind of a beautiful area, I guess. From what I hear, I haven't been there yet. I moved to, to the Dallas area. Oh, nice. Dallas is a burgeoning, thriving economic you know, community. And there's a lot of conservative places up here, uh, com- counties and stuff. And Austin is like little L.A. And like there's they've got almost the same homeless problem. Not as bad, but it's getting there. And they defunded the police. So I know a lot of my colleagues who are conservatives actually are uh, some of the more artistic ones are moving to the Austin area, but I wouldn't because I don't care how pretty it is. The area I, you know, I don't want to be uh, in a place that defunds the police and let's, you know, that turns basically Austin to little LA and that's right. That's just sad to me. But anyway, yeah. So the reason why I left was um, freedom. I mean, that, that's the the most generic way to describe it but uh, california is becoming a fascist state it, it already is a fascist state but it's it's closing in its claws and the uh the, as the as the uh uh the demands and restrictions because of covid grew and increased um that wasn't my main reason but it it's just another symptom of what's happening and and um but what happened for me was that I had never t- planned on living there till we were old and dying anyway, because it's just not the place for that. And right. So the question was always like, you know, when would, you know, I, I worked, I, I make movies. That's kind of where the area is where you make movies, the connections and all that stuff. And I still have those connections. I'm still doing movies, but you know, it's better to be where the, all the action is, et cetera. But what happened was the last year when, um, when Hollywood went completely woke and they were like just outwardly racist, just saying, you know, we're not going to hire white males and certain, you know, middle-aged males and stuff like that. Uh, you know, and, and, and I saw that, that they were putting demands on scripts that all had to become woke, you know, and had to have this leftist sort of po- political edge to it. I knew that my time, my time there was over. Uh, there was no more opportunity for me to work within that paradigm. I had to work I had to move outside and work in a uh, parallel economy, which I've kind of always been in the in that world. Anyway, I've been an independent filmmaker, not in the studios. That's, you know, the but nevertheless, it's like I've, I've been in that world, been around those people and, and trying to get movies made within the system. So basically what it used to be is I would the people like me who have a different worldview than, than Hollywood, you know, 
we're we're you know we've been persecuted for all my all my time that I've been there. But what you do is you try to be quiet about it, subtle. You find people you agree with, make your movies, try to fly them in under the radar and, you know, embed your values within them, but not be propagandistic, right? Because you can't, sure. only Hollywood can be propagandistic with its leftism. But if you have a conservative viewpoint, you have to be very artistic and creative, right? Which I'm okay right. with, but, but nevertheless, that was the reality. And so we would do that. But then I realized, oh, when I realized in 2020 was they were outright saying that distributors you know, and studios and distribution outlets were not going to even accept the kind of stuff that that I make. And um, and they're going to hunt down people like me when that became clear. And then the Oscars going completely woke. Now, I don't really care. I haven't watched the Oscars in years. I don't care about it. It's always been political, but it still is a kind of a sign of the times. And when they basically said, you know, now to be nominated, movies have to be you know, have to have certain amounts of uh, what we call oppressed minorities and all this kind of stuff in them. It, it, it went so extreme that that told me like, oh, you know, uh, along with executives literally just saying racist things like that you could never get away with if it was reversed. If, if you were to say, you know, we're not going to hire black people or people of brown, people of color. It's like, oh, that's clearly obviously racist. But as soon as they turn it against, you know, um, uh, white male males and stuff, I realized, okay, they're hunting us down now. And there's just no, there's no way. And so I've, I've now sort of focused more on that independent world still of filmmaking, but I don't need to be around Hollywood anymore to make the connections. And I don't care anymore anyway, because, you know, my novels are, are doing well. And it's, it's been the form of storytelling for me that's enabled me to reach far more people, you know, hundreds of thousands um, than I have with my movies. And it's allowed yeah. me to also incorporate my beliefs in a way better than I ever have with my movies. So, yeah, it's interesting that literature, fiction, nonfiction has kind of been the last bastion of freedom of speech. Like you can pretty much I haven't I had this I had this thought, too. Like, yeah, writing is an interesting thing because you even in some of the like, you know, some Stephen King stuff, some Game of Thrones stuff, like you can get away with some like seriously torture porn-esque things there. It's still yeah. kind of allowed. And it's weird that I don't know why the written word kind of gets a pass or it's like, because um, I, I always ask the question, it's like, what is like, what does that say about George R, like the people that, think of these things and spend time like what does that say about them like are they secretly like sociopathic or something or is it just yeah. like we just call them creative yeah, but, yeah. Um, well that has been the tendency all along anyway is that the the, the creative the creative dark realm uh bends towards darkness and um those who those who control the media and the entertainment world are tend to be more darker people and so it just feeds on itself and it becomes darker and darker. And, and that's, that's definitely true as you, you know, it's clear that everything's becoming much darker in terms of entertainment and stuff. And, um, and I'm being nice because I probably have a higher tolerance for some of that stuff than many other Christians or religious people might have. Cause I'm in the industry, obviously. Um, but nevertheless, it's like, you know, uh, I also see the same, yeah, the same darkness that is just, 
uh, enveloping everything, you know. And it's interesting. I, I'm not going to deny though that still some still good good movies get made good oh yeah get through i've heard lately that the latest spider-man movie is is actually quite uh, amazing woke, you know 10 out so, of 10 10 yeah. out of 10 it was amazing that's cool I saw that's it. great uh, to hear yeah i will i i i shall shy away from spoilers just that everyone needs good. to go see it um so you reached out so i think the last um the last time we talked, I believe it was about Revelation. The time before that was about uh, the Nephilim. And this time it's about Genesis. Correct? Not really. Moses. 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 I'm sorry. It was Moses, one of one of the right, Genesis. One of the sis. <laughs> says, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it is relevant, though. Uh, there is. I do actually write about um, how Genesis relates to the time of Moses actually. So, yeah. So that, that definitely intrigued me. I guess I'll start with, okay. When, and it's funny too, I had revelation has, has come back up on my podcast recently um, just with different people having different interpretations on it. And a lot of my listeners was curious, curious about it. I will say, so one of the things about Moses in my in the past years, studies of things, some things that have stood out to me um, or some things that have surprised me on some fundamental beliefs I had. Like I always, you know, believed the Exodus story, the Jews in slavery in Egypt. Um, then they were exiled, the wandering for 40 years and the Moses. And recent, I, I try to do a good job of, of reading all sides of arguments right to kind of suss out the truth right and so of course i came across the the arguments basically saying that like there's no evidence for any sort of like millions of jews uh enslaved in egypt during any time period there's no like archaeological evidence of you think there would be evidence left behind of of them wandering or artifacts or whatever yeah so i guess i'm curious um i will say though i that's I don't know much about it. Uh, so I'm curious to learn as well. Yeah, well, first of all, the context of this is the, the book I've I'm not a I'm not a scholar. Uh, I'm not an Egyptologist. I'm a I'm a, you know, a, a dramatist and a storyteller. Uh, but I do study a lot of the research in order to write my books, and my, which are novels. So the context is the, the book is Moses Against the Gods of Egypt. And it is a novel retelling the Moses story, which, of course, you know, that's a scary thing to do because everyone's so familiar with it. However, my context is I'm, I'm writing within that watcher paradigm that we have talked about on, on previous episodes, which is this this belief that, you know, in the spiritual realm, there there are uh, de demonic entities, you know, that called watchers that, that have been, uh, let's put it this way, the ancient world, including Israel, believed that they're uh, uh, um, over the earthly authorities and nations, that there were heavenly authorities and beings. And those were called the watchers over those nations, you know, and this, this concept has to do with the fact that, you know, God was going to be the, 
was going to be a watcher of Israel, so to speak. He was going to pull his nation, Israel, out of the Gentile nations. And so he gave over all the other Gentile nations to be ruled by these other watcher beings. And they're fallen entities. You know, they're, they were evil. They did not do justice. And, and Psalm 82 talks about this, where God gives them the authority over these uh, Gentile nations, but they don't, they don't, lead with justice and you know god knows that they wouldn't because they're all pagan idolaters and all this but the point was was for him to you know bring his community out of that and be a light shining in the darkness of the world and then ultimately messiah was going to come uh and he did in jesus but messiah was in the old testament messiah was supposed to come and take back the inheritance of all those nations so that people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation could then flow into the kingdom of God. And that's, of course, what Jesus did. And that's the sort of theological principle of the watcher paradigm, you know? And so I'm, I'm retelling, I'm, oh, go ahead. Well, I wanted to, so since you brought up Spider-Man, did you happen to, or read about Eternals and how that is essentially the Watcher story. It is the Marvel version of the Watcher story. Oh, really? I, it, yeah. I expect it to be. I have not had the chance to watch it yet, but I have not read anything you, about it. But you yeah, should watch it from that perspective. Because I yeah. and, and okay. then I did some digging, and apparently Jack Kirby was heavily. He was the guy because there's literally a character called the Watcher in, oh, yeah. in, in Marvel. Yeah, it's it's literally. And this is what just like lends so to me what lends so much credence to this 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 narrative is that it is the exact same story that has been told cross culturally, cross historically. Like everyone is basically saying that this is what happened. So maybe, or let's put it this way: this is the worldview of, of all the ancients. You know, right. and yeah, we we now pride ourselves in having a modern scientific worldview and such. Such that's a whole nother discussion. That you know, yeah, we've grown in terms of science and technology, but there's also an ignorance about our worldview that we don't realize how how blind we are to certain things. And you know, the more materialistic you become, um, yeah, you might there certainly there's things wrong about the ancient worldview, but there are also some things right that when we turn against that and become modernists and materialists, we reject the supernatural. And I mean, I'm speaking as a whole, obviously, as a Christian, I do, I do believe in the supernatural. But nevertheless, culturally, that, that negation of the supernatural lends itself to blindness and the inability to see things that, you know. So yeah, there's some advances in knowledge, but then there's also, uh, uh, you know. Some regressions. Regressions, some, uh, ab absolutely. That would be my Some atrophy of the spiritual muscle. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that is a narrative that I, I believe the Bible is basically teaching, you know, but it does have a different context than what the other ancient worldviews do have, but there is that notion. And so, um, so here's the thing, and we'll get to, we'll get to some of the, the factoids about Moses. Absolutely. But first, I just want to lay this down that. Yeah, that, so I, absolutely. I, re I retell the story and, you know, we're all familiar with the 10 plagues, right? And uh, but there's a famous verse, Exodus 12, 12, where God himself says, uh, I will execute judgments upon the gods of Egypt. And so it's like, whoa, wait a minute here, Lau. You know, it's like, what's going on here? Is this just a meta metaphorical thing? You know, and some, most people would argue that it is. But um, uh, so I explored the ancient Egyptian religion, and I wanted to bring that context, that ancient context, to the Moses story that I haven't seen before. I'm sure others may have done that, but um, 
but no one's ever done the story this way. And what that is, is when, when the plagues are occur, I'm, I'm sort of pulling the curtain back to the spiritual world and, and, you know, speculating about what that might've looked like during that time period when they're being judged. And so I have these gods of Egypt and of course they are demonic watcher beings, you know, who are masquerading as these deities and, and people are worshiping them, et cetera. Um, but nevertheless, uh, they're, they're being judged in these plagues. Why? Because God is actually sort of humbling and uh, holding down Egypt so that he can pull his people out. And the way he does that is to humble the gods of Egypt, right? Now, the, the, traditionally, people have sort of thought, well, you know, maybe the t each of the 10 plagues are, you know, maybe it's, uh, the, if, if that concept is what it's about, then maybe each of those plagues are attacking a different god, like the frog god. You know, when the plague of frogs, there's a frog god named Hekat, right? Or there's a locust god named Sekhmet. No, not Sekhmet. Um, Senhem. And oh, like and, there, you know, there, there actually is. In, yeah, in, yeah, there in... is. But here's the problem. And when I did the research, this is what was so fascinating to me was, I don't think that's actually what was going on because number one, um, all the all the plagues do not match up with specific, uh, like, you know, gnats or, you know, flies and stuff like that. Um, they don't match up to specific gods. And, and the ones that, that might, uh, other than Ra, the sun god, right? But most of them are minor deities that have nothing to do with the importance of, of the real power in Egypt. You know, we're talking Isis and Osiris and Horus, and, and, and those gods aren't accounted for. And so what's going on here? And, and I think that um, what I discovered was it's really an attack on, on the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods because the Egyptian worldview was not this sort of one for one. There's a God of this and a God of that. They had, if you see a picture of the cosmology drawn of the various gods, you know, it's really amusing, but it's interesting too. And that is their belief was that, you know, the whole natural world was infused with deities working and interacting with each other. And so there's not just one God of the Nile, for instance, Hopi, was a god of the Nile, but he was particularly represented fertility and, and such uh, from the inundation, which was the, you know, when it, when it, when it, when raised, it would flood. It would, yeah. yeah, when it would flood and it would go down and it would, would fertilize the land for them to grow on it, right? But that's, but that's just one element of Hopi. And there were many other deities of the Nile. There was a guardian god of the Nile, Kanum. Uh, but, but they all, the point is, is they all had multiple uh, responsibilities in relation to the natural world. And some of them, a lot of them were crossovers. So I did research and found like there was like 20 deities that are related to the Nile, various elements of the Nile, oh, wow. right? There are about 10, 15 related to each of these uh, elements, like, you know, live, the plague on the livestock, right? Well, there's many livestock deities, right? So my, I, I came to the conclusion that, that the plagues of Egypt we're a judgment on the whole pantheon of God. So when he's doing these, it's not like he's striking the God of frogs. What he's doing is God is what we call, what theologians call decreating, or he's doing decreation. So creation was the belief that our gods, you know, uh, uh, brought these things into being. They maintained the system, right? You know, every year the the Nile rises and the planting and the fertility. And these, our gods are keeping the order of creation going, right? But when God comes along, he starts um, 
you know, not only destroying things like the crops, but he's sending plagues of chaos creatures like flies and pests, right? And what he's doing is he's destroying the ecosystem to prove that these gods have no power or control over the, over the, the ecosystem, right? They're completely uh, without power. It is God who is in control of nature. And so he returns creation to chaos, and th when I say that is, you know, our notion of chaos is everything's just like a whirlwind tornado. And yeah, that might be one way of seeing it. But chaos was, was simply the, the opposite of order to the ancient mind. And the whole point was that the, the natural world was chaos. Like the desert or the sea were both considered to be chaos because they were, you know, wilderness or the sea is just these waves and they don't know what's under the waves. And, you know, so, so for... Um, so creation was the belief that the gods would bring order out of that nature and allow the humans to grow crops and all that and, and raise cattle, right? So when what God's doing is he's destroying that whole ecosystem to show he's the God overall. So yeah, he's judging the gods through the plagues, but it's a very it's very much the pantheon, the whole pantheon of gods. He's decimating them. And the theological thing that's going on there is this is a decreation. He's returning creation to the pre-created chaos, which is the ultimate power, right? What God could do, do that, but the God of creation. But then, you know, theologically speaking, when God pulls Israel out and he makes them go through the sea, there's, there's Psalms like Psalm 74 that talk about how God is, is um, it uses creation language of the Israel covenant. So in other words, when God establishes his covenant with Israel in Sinai, he is giving the newly established order, the law, right? The order of how everything should be, that, it, that, that, that he is uh, establishing his people Israel. So he's, it's like when he establishes the nation of Israel with the law at Sinai, that's the, that's the covenant of creation. They thought in those terms, in other words, like they didn't think like the physical universe is disconnected from everything was a, was a whole. So when they became a nation, so to speak, they were, they were being created. The, 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 God's universe was being created. That's the, that's the language that's used. And so it's this really cool theological motif that's going on there. But I wanted to show these gods and what it might look like behind the curtains of spiritual world while these plagues are going on. So I tell two stories. I tell the story of Moses and, um, you know, all the way from, you know, yeah, roughly from his birth to, to, uh, to Mount Sinai. But I also tell this story, what's going on at the same time in the spiritual realm? And that's sort of the unique take on it that um, my whole series, Chronicles of the Watchers, Chronicles of the Nephilim, and Chronicles of the Apocalypse, they all use that same paradigm to retell these biblical stories. So that was, you, that was my goal, and that's the unique angle of Moses against the gods of Egypt. Do you match up the, what was it, the... 13 named uh, watchers, do you match them like Samyaza is set or any of okay. that? Or is it yeah. kind of? Well, first of all, the actually the uh, Samyaza and and um, there's several, that, all those, those watchers that were named in the book of Enoch that mm -hmm. I do, you know, I do use the book of Enoch as a reference to tell my stories, but 
Um, it's not scripture, but I still use it as a reference because the Bible used it as a reference. So I thought that would be okay. So um, anyway, those were actually imprisoned at the flood. So we don't know any actual. Um, okay. So these would have been the, uh, dis the disembodied spirits from the no, dead. No, 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 no. Um, my, my oh, that's right. This was okay. So this was the, the tower of Babel when, when Yahweh assigned different Elohim to the nations. Yes, okay. exactly. Okay. Psalm, that's where uh, we're at. Deuteronomy 32, eight through 10. The, the uh, second he, rebellion or the yes, second incursion. Exactly. And where those watches come from, I don't know. There Maybe there was a second uh, rebellion or or maybe uh, he didn't imprison all of them at the flood. I don't know, but yeah, definitely. Yes. Okay, so there yes, are. I got my timeline screwed Got up. it, yeah. Do you, do you um, characterize Pharaoh's sorcerers? I do. Uh, I, 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 so I wanted to be historically as accurate as possible. And also under, you know, I wanted to weave in the Egyptian worldview because that's something we haven't seen as much uh, into this story. So uh, for instance, you know, the Bible calls them the sorcerers magicians, but that's the Hebrew word. The Egyptians called them lector priests. They were actually priests of the temple and ma magic was one of their elements. The point being that you know, magician, you know, when we hear the word magician, we have this weird bias of, you know, actually, right. we know a lot of it's just fake stuff, right? You know, just, right. Uh, uh, what's it called? Diversion of attention, all this kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. Um, illusionist. Yeah, illusionist, right? But no, no, the word, the concept of magic to them was a very embedded concept. They really believed, um, and they had these lector priests who, who were in charge of this kind of stuff. And so they, they believed that, for instance, they had a lot of belief in words that words had power and so this they did a lot of incantations and stuff like that um and why their priests had to be eloquent of speech is the kind of the concept um because it wasn't like abracadabra necessarily it was you know they did include some of those beliefs of like they could turn snakes into staffs right um but it was really more about them using using formulas it's like it's like to them it was a science if they they had these all these formulas of things that they would say in order to get the gods to do things that they wanted them to do yes and so that, it's kind of a science and wasn't that um there was some apocryphal story where there was some woman who was trying to get the name of god from one of the watchers do you know what i'm talking about and and like she she tricked one of the watchers into giving her like the actual name name of god and she okay. got it and then there was like a teleportation or something if you find if you know where that is please get back to me on that i'm not okay familiar with that. but, so, it, but however, it, the idea was like that their names had serious power well okay so now here's the interesting thing that's an Egyptian worldview concept that um, if you if if you knew the secret name of a being it, and people could have secret names as well and and as as well as gods and actually it comes from a, a famous um, myth story myth about Isis so Isis was you know the 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 lead god Ra um, you know and there at different time periods there's different head gods and stuff but Ra or Amun Ra was. Uh, you know, one time or another, you know, it's considered that that high God. And and so she wanted to she uh, Isis was a, uh, one of the you know gods of magic. She was the strongest one of magic. And 
and uh, she was known to be the one who knew all the secret names, but she didn't know the secret name of, of Ron. So she tried to trick Ron to get it. And, and she did actually. So she kind of, you know, it's like, maybe she was the first feminist goddess. I don't know, but yeah, but she, uh, you know, so she had temporary power over Ra, you know, it's not like she became over him, but it just gave her that sort of ability to get her way type of thing. Right. So yeah, they, they believe names, uh, knowing the secret name. So there was a, a public name and then the secret name. And, uh, yeah, that's very, very Egyptian, which is interesting because this there's this whole thing of god's name in in the bible in in the epic story of exodus where um where you know moses is asking well what's your name what i'm going to tell them your name is right and and was he asking remember moses came from egypt so he was born and raised so he had that worldview and when he first meets you know yahweh in the burning bush he's like you know what's your name it's like was he fishing for the secret name to you know yeah interesting thing that's an interesting, interesting concept. Thing is, God gives him his name, which it's sort of like a denial of the whole power thing. It's like, I'm going to give you my name and it's Yahweh. And if there's power. My power is in the name of Yahweh, but you will have no power over me. <laughs> you know, right, uh, right. I'm the one who has the power. So in a way he's kind of, Yahweh is saying, there is no secret name of power that you have over me. Secondly, was when Moses, you know, we told Moses to go and speak to Pharaoh and such. Moses, is like, I, I, I can't. I mean, I'm not of eloquent of speech, and I'm, I actually. That's what I was going to ask. Is, did and he have a stutter? Did he have? Actually, I did research on that, and the scholarship I think indicates strongly that Moses had a stuttering problem. And I, yeah. I so what I do is I, I have a second book that goes along with the novel, and it's, it's the research for those who want to know the biblical historical research, it's called um, The Spiritual World of Moses in Egypt. And I go through all my research on that. And I found out that, yeah, he had a stuttering problem, which is really interesting. You don't, you've never seen that anywhere. Well, that's in my story. I show him with the stuttering problem to start out with. But this is what's interesting. When he says, I'm not eloquent of speech, that was the, that was the terminology that they would use a magician. So God is telling him to go back there and do these things which look like magic tricks, right? I mean, they're more than magic tricks, we know. But my point is, is God is, in a sense, God's kind of working within their paradigm. He's saying, you know, I'm going to show you these various signs, and they're very similar to what Egyptians knew about snakes turning to staffs, right? Um, however, uh, Moses is... is Moses was seeing himself as like, am I your lector priest type of thing, you know, but I, I can't. Oh, that is interesting. Lector priests or magicians, they were masters. They were eloquent of speech. They were masters. And he's like, I can't do that. But God, what does God say? It's like, I'm the one who gives language and the tongue. I am the one. He's deliberately picking someone who could not be construed as a magician, right? To show that the power is of God. So there's a lot of these cool things that are all embedded within the text theologically that you don't necessarily know unless you do that research. And I tried to weave them in the, into the story. And, um, and you, you bring up, uh, there's one more element about this. So there's, in, in the Old Testament, none of the magicians are named. They just say, you know, um, pharaoh's magicians but in the new testament the apostle paul mentions in one of the books i think it's timothy one of the timothys right he he says that the pharaoh's egypt uh, magicians janus and jambres that's it were were rebels right and and you know he's talking he's linking them to i think like you know the false teachers of, of that day and and they were condemned right 
And so it's interesting, there's nowhere in the Old Testament that the name Janice and Jambres are. Well, where they get that, right? And it just so happens that there, uh, there is a tradition of those magicians, but there's also an uh, apocryphal book called Janice and Jambres, which tells the story of the, the, these two brothers who were magicians. Uh, and, and it's really fascinating and, and interesting. So I drew from that, you know, that, it, look, it doesn't line up perfectly with the Bible, but there's enough po- interesting storytelling elements about Janice and Jambres that I incorporated that into my novel. So one of my main characters are those two two lector priests or magician brothers, and how one of them, this this apocryphal book, or actually it's a pseudepigraphal book, all right? That's the term, that technical term. But, but um, the story tells about how one of the brothers, Janice, has this death experience and stuff, and he, he, re- he repents enough to say, you know, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. We should, this is, this God of Israel is mighty. We got to, you know, right? And the other brother doesn't, right? And so it's kind of cool how it's showing the contrast. So I, I bring that story into the Moses story from their perspective as lector priests or magicians in Pharaoh's court. And it's a whole storyline where we get to see the Egyptian worldview of afterlife and, and judgment and what it was through the eyes of these uh, uh, pharaonic magicians. That's, I wonder if there's like any narrative play between them. And then you have like the two witnesses in revelation. Well, you know, it is a common concept. Um, you know, by two witnesses, you establish a, you know, fact. That's true. Yeah. There might be something. Oh yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a common notion, even in the ancient world. Yeah. So, well, and then speaking of Pharaoh, what, yeah, tell me about that character and then the, the real yeah. life. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't mind if we jump out a little bit into the histori- historicity issues, because in order to write a novel about Moses, um, if you, you know, we don't know, the Bible doesn't say what Pharaoh M- Moses was born under, and it doesn't say what Pharaoh was the Pharaoh of the Exodus. It just uses the name Pharaoh, right? So these are some of these questions that we have. And of course, historically speaking, the Ten Commandments movie said it was Ramses was the Exodus Pharaoh. And, uh, and that that's actually is based on a, the more liberal scholarship of, of recent years. Um, but, uh, but the, but what you mentioned earlier brings up all these problems, and that is like there's no evidence in this time period. Uh, first of all, let's pull back. Uh, the most earliest view was based on the on biblical references, like First Kings six one, talks about 480 years after Israel came out of Egypt, Solomon builds his the temple, right? And so we know Solomon's temple roughly. We're we're close you know, around 967 BC or yeah, BC or something like that. So if we count back 480 years, you get the, the Exodus is around 1447 BC. And that was always, and there's other biblical passages that point to that, but that's like the strongest one, right? And that was really clear biblically. And so traditionally, most people understood the Exodus at around 1447 BC, but then more recent so, years. So how long ago, I'm terrible at math. So that would be how long ago from now? So that's like, you know, 3,000 years, right? We're 2,000 okay. years. So that's okay, like yes, 3,400 yes. years ago, right? Okay. Or, you know, 1447 before Christ, right? Okay. 
So yeah, that's an ancient time period. But the problem is, is that the more recent um, scholarship has has argued that uh, no, the uh, and 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 they come up with all these. I don't want to go into details, and I I don't sure. even have all of them. But they basically argue that um, uh, 1250 BC was the new date that they think the Exodus really occurred, and it occurred under Ramses, and and they have some biblical arguments, pseudo biblical arguments. But um, I address some of that stuff in my my book the spiritual world of moses and, and answer those issues but that's been the most popular view even with bible believing christians and jews uh they still generally uh, you know believe it's ramses but the, that causes major problems with the bible and what happens is 1250 bc that would make the conquest 40 years later around 1200 bc right and that's where you bring up the problem and the problem is there's no evidence of semites jews were semites and if we have evidence of their bones, we, would all, we wouldn't know they're Jews. We would just know they're Semites. That's the only thing we could know about them because Semites are a language group that, that includes all the Levantine area with Syrians and Canaanites and Jews. You know. But nevertheless, there's no, there's no evidence of Semites in Egypt in that time period. There's no, um, there's no evidence, they say, of... Uh, of, of uh, of people along the traditional route that they believe goes to the traditional uh, setting of Mount Sinai, which is in the Sinai Peninsula down near the south. And, um, you know, the Red Sea, uh, to cross the Red Sea would be near impossible because <laughs> I know God does miracles, but if you pull back the waters, the, the, the edges of the sea are so steep, people couldn't go down them, you know? Um, and, and so there's mm. been the belief that it was on the, it was the sea of reeds, which is north of there. And they're more, it's more like a lake and it was more like a tsunami. And, and that's what the latest movie shows is a tsunami in the bitter lakes region. You know, that's the more liberal theory. And also there's no evidence when, if Joshua conquered the promised land in 1200 BC, G there's no evidence that Jericho, Hazor, or all the walled cities that they supposedly conquered were not inhabited. They were inhabited like hundreds of years earlier, and they were. And the walls of Jericho did fall, but not in that time period. So, so this is why they say there's no evidence of of any of it, right? Well, the problem is, is if you if you uh, if you shift back to the 1447 BC traditional date, and there's better reasons for it now than ever before all of a sudden all that stuff gets answered and there becomes and if you understand too that the uh, the crossing of the red sea is actually not in the traditional understanding of the red sea or the sea of reeds but it's actually in the gulf of aqaba so there's all these cool things that i had to look into um but hmm. also uh all those towns that were destroyed a few hundred years earlier, well, that's when they were destroyed, was around 14, 1400 BC. And so it fits perfectly the paradigm um, of that, that earlier date, as we call it. There's an early date Exodus and a late date. Late date is the Ramses 1250 BC date. Early date is the 1447 BC. Now, without going, you know, I mean, Here's the problem. I had to write a novel, so I'm studying this stuff. Well, what you know, where was the Red Sea? Where'd they cross? And just to tell the story, and I realized there's, sure. oh, there's all these controversies. So I had to do a lot of research. It took me like, well, I don't know, it's hard to say, but you know, it, it's it, roughly a year. Now, 
unfortunately that was that year included me moving out of LA to Texas and I lost a lot of months you know I lost maybe actually not a year more like a year and a half but I lost about six months in all that I wasn't able to write so nonetheless this has taken me the most amount of time to research because there's so many controversial questions and I have to well, where what what am I going to commit to in my story you know and so what I yeah. did was uh, in my in my search I stumbled upon or you know I encountered a couple of great writers and scholars on it number one is I found this this um, documentary series called patterns of evidence and it's by a filmmaker Tim Honey and the first one's patterns of evidence the exodus and it it explores all these historical issues and it's an excellent documentary I highly recommend it you I think it's cheap rental on Amazon, or you can go to their website and pa it, patterns of evidence, patterns gonna, of evidence. I'm going to watch that. Okay. Absolutely. You'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. It answers all these issues and, and opens up the world to a, some interesting possibilities, but it ended up becoming a series of documentaries because he also explores the Red Sea crossing. He explores Mount Sinai. So he's got up to four videos, four documentaries now, and they're all brilliant. So I recommend you check those out. That's, I, I, that's one of the most influential um, uh, references. Within that series, there's a, an Egyptologist, famous scholar named David Roll, who's not a Christian, but he believes that he, he believes that the, the Egypt, the modern day scholarship is, is anti-biblical and in a bad way in in that you know uh let's put it this way he believes that the bible is basically true and and you know he doesn't believe it's all factual but he believes it basically does fit history so he has um is also a scholar who's brought out what's called a new chronology of egypt and what it does is it explores the traditional consensus of the egyptian history is one way you gotta realize Egyptian history is like three over three thousand years, right? They well, probably, yeah, probably. Well, and I'm big on like Randall Carlson, Graham Hancock, um, John Anthony West, and like what people don't understand about modern Egyptology is that like it is so politically charged and yeah. full of crap and they've got their narrative and they're good with it and all these people are coming up with all this new evidence like no that's not even close to correct and they're like yeah it is we're good yeah. this is it, it we're good and and the, the their little secret is it, when you study egyptology you find out that e the egyptian chronology is a mess now there is a consensus view because you know over over 100 plus years you're going to come to the like you know the dominant viewpoint basically and what most scholars believe and they'll they'll, they'll try to support the narrative and like you said you know there's there's but there's so much new evidence that comes in but the consensus view the you know the the establishment view obviously never likes to, to accept any any anything else so um so there's a lot of controversy about it and stuff but david roll his argument is that the whole chronology of Egypt sh should shift to several hundred years anyway. Um, and so he argues basically that if you look at the various dynasties, he thinks that it, you know, the, he argues that the, uh, uh, the Exodus occurred in four, around 1447 BC. And the Pharaoh at that time was a particular Pharaoh named Dudimos. Now he brings um, other historian references, ancient historian references, and 
um, some archaeological artifacts that that support his theory, and it's really fascinating. Now there are other, you know, other options for pharaohs that have good arguments. Um, uh, Amenhotep II is a good possibility. Some Christians even promote Thutmose and uh, several others. You know, uh, so there are, there's a there's room for for disagreement. And I've I've seen some of the arguments of other pharaohs as the pharaoh of the Exodus, and they're they're pretty good. I'm not you know I'm not here to say oh they're all wrong and this is the best view. I just right. found David Roll's work was so fascinating because he helped me to see Egyptology from a fresh perspective, and I just thought you know this. This is a this is a narrative that's got a lot of sense to it, and I'm going to tell the story that no one's told yet. So my Pharaoh of the Exodus is Dudamos, and what was he like, right? And like I said, there is actually some history. He's not he's not a big famous um, Egypt uh, Pharaoh, but there are a few facts out there, and. Um, uh, a few historical references, like, for instance, there's a famous historian. Um, Manitho, who was a Greek historian of Egypt, and uh, he actually makes a reference to uh, plague, the plagues of Egypt occurring under the pharaoh Tutameos, which is in Greek, which is more likely, most likely Dudamos in Egyptian, right? Now, the problem here is there's all these translation problems, right? So Greeks will often give names that are not the same as the original. I mean, that's the problem of translation, any language. Uh, you know, if you read the Bible, um, some of the Hebrew names of some of the kings aren't like the same. There's no as, direct translation, yeah. Yeah, now sometimes there is. You, you can see similarities, and I would argue, uh, Roll argues that Manitho's Tutameos is very close to Dunamos, and, but sometimes they don't, and that's the problem. And, and sometimes it's like the, the, the pharaoh of Moses' birth, according to Artapanus, was, who was another famous ancient Jewish historian, but he had access to more ancient documents, see? And he called him uh, um, Palmonothus, which is like there's no similarity to anybody, right? But the but the thing is is he said he said uh, that uh, you know the the mother or the Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh who picked Moses' basket out of the Nile. Well, Artapanus says that she was married. She was married away to Coneferus, and. Coneferus is the Egyptian version of that is Kenephera, and there's only one pharaoh in the history of Egypt who had the name, the pronomen, which is the, the ascension to the throne name of Kenephera, and he was Sobekhotep IV. And there is some interesting information, Sobekhotep IV, that I think also connects up with Moses. So there's, yeah, there's all cool historical stuff. And, and for people who really want to get into that stuff, I do a moderate amount of the research, you know, to make the most amount of sense. But if you want to go into the scholarly stuff, read David Roll's work. Anything he's written is fantastic, in my opinion, particularly his most recent book, Exodus, Myth or History. And uh, that's the book. Oh, that, yeah, that just that. sounds so, great. So I incorporated a lot of that stuff. So you're going to, you, you know, like I say, you're, uh, the stuff that happens in my novel is based on this understanding. And so you're going to see stuff you haven't seen before because of what happens in that time period and with that particular pharaoh and, and such. So I tried to, you know, I tried to root 
most of my cho my dramatic choices in something historical but you know there's obviously going to be a lot of fiction that goes on as well oh sure so how many books do you have planned for this series <laughs> i don't know but you know and i can't I, part of my goal on chronicles of the watchers this is the series i'm on right now moses is the third the first book is jezebel harley queen of israel and the mm -hmm. second one is chin the uh emperor king of china what that's not biblical is it well Part of my premise is, is that if there are these pagan watchers over the nations, then I want to, I'm going to begin with some biblical stories that I didn't cover under my old series, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And then I'm going to expand it out into other nations. So um, uh, I'm not saying where I'm going yet, but, but Chin is one of the first ones. In other words, Chin tells the story uh, a, a, a sort of a mythical hist history uh, of the first emperor of China that does have a lot of stories and legends behind it. It's very fascinating, but I think it's tied to the ba Tower of Babel too. So there's some really cool stuff going on there. But in and, other then, words, I'm, it's not and then I'm sure I India as well would probably be yeah, one oh, of yeah, the other I mean, big ones. Yeah, and the British Isles. So there's a lot of opportunities, but I'm still at the very beginning here, and it's going to take some years to for me because the next the next couple are still in the Jewish Bible. Uh, paradigm because so for instance if you if you look at my chronicles of the nephilim series that was the first one to start it all first book was noah primeval about noah and then i went on and covered other ones abraham and and uh enoch um but then i went from abraham and i jumped to joshua and the the conquest of the promised land and then joshua valiant caleb vigilant were two novels that told the story of Joshua and Caleb conquering the promised land, conquering the Anakim giants, right? But I never told the Moses story. I just, you know, I was just pick, you know, I had to pick certain stories and I didn't, I didn't pick the Moses story. So now I wrote the Moses book. So now you can stick the Moses book in, in between, in the middle of that series, right? You, if you start with Moses, you can then move on to Joshua Valiant and Caleb Vigilant and see the rest of the story. So Chronicles of the Watchers is sort of some books are going to be integrated where, you, you know, so they're, they're standalone novels, but you can read them in series and get more out of them if you want, right? So yeah, I'm, okay. I'm starting there and then I'm going to expand out to the other nations. Let me, before, let me just, uh, throw out a complete possible left turn it doesn't have to be a whole big thing but i'm curious to your opinions what do you think about atlantis um i don't know a lot about it i i haven't been a big study around that i mean i've heard about some of the more recent theories that sound really fascinating like uh what is it in the western part of africa mm -hmm. like like the the, the concentric that, circles or yeah, whatever big, yeah, yeah. I, I saw a couple videos on that i'm like that's really cool it's really um, interesting but I, I haven't done I haven't done research on that yet. And that, that, that may that be an idea up. for future books because the, absolutely it there is absolutely a way for it to like there is a, a school of thought that descendants of the Nephilim were the founders of Atlantis and that was part of the sinking of it. But that's a whole different sure. thing. Yeah, so, no, that, and and I've actually heard at. Um, who was it who wrote? Was it Plato? Plato wrote about, yes. uh, yes. right? But uh, Plato and Aristotle also have passages where they talk about the gods over nations. 
Oh, so, I will have to look into that. That yeah, I hadn't I'll, heard. That's I'll super you, interesting. I'll yeah, you. I got that from Doug Van Dorn. Actually, he's the one that like uh, stumbled upon that one. And wow. uh, that's what blew my mind. So it's like, yeah, even they had that same concept. So yeah, there might be something Very there cool. and, and maybe that's something in the future. Yeah. So where can everyone find your books? So all my books are in ebook, uh, paperback or audiobook. Most all of them. Moses is not audio yet, but it will be. Everything's on Amazon exclusively. And um, you can go straight there and, and, you know, I've got a lot of details of descriptions that you can, you know, read up on the stuff before you buy it. Or if you want to go to my website, Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com, I do have a lot of background material and stuff that's fascinating and interesting. I, I, I often um, cast my novels, so I, I have like pictures of characters that might be my characters in the novels, but I also give a lot of background scholarly articles that you can read. Like there's articles about the flood and there's articles about the Exodus and all that written by scholars for those who are interested in more details. So there's a lot of helpful material on my website. But um, if you go straight to Amazon, you'll, you'll learn enough about the novels to figure out which one you want to start with. But, uh, you know, look, Moses is the newest novel. And if you start there, it, you're going to pro probably get the bite and you'll want to read the whole series. So um, whatever. Like I said, you can read each novel independently if you want. Awesome. Uh, and send me an email, churchandotherdrugs at gmail.com, uh, patreon.com slash churchandotherdrugs for bonus episodes, and storefrontier.com slash churchandotherdrugs for merchandise. Thanks again, Brian, so much, and uh, have a Merry Christmas, man. Thanks, bro. You too. Fly, Yeah.